Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode, we focus on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. My name is Stephen Dutrolio Coakley. Today, we're bringing a conversation between Victoria Perez Rivera and Sofia Magallanes on the topic of mentorship in the academy. For more information about today's talk, go to htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to the HTI Open Plaza podcast. My name is Victoria Perez Rivera, and I am here having a conversation with Dr. Sofia Magallanes. Uh, Dr. Magallanes, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, um, what you're doing right now, where you're at? Okay, so I am an assistant professor at Life Pacific University. Um, I am in the middle of a Job commentary for the Pentecostal um, commentary on the Old Testament, uh, published by Wolfenstaff uh, Publishing, and I have been working on the Book of Job for the past 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I teach anything from Pentateuch all the way to prison epistles in the New Testament, wow. and a lot. I've taught a lot of hermeneutics. Sometimes I'll teach Hebrew in Spanish through Centro Latino for Fuller, mm-hmm. and then um, I'll teach Hebrew and also a Pentateuch class for Azusa Pacific University as well. Very nice. Very nice. Well, congrats on your forthcoming commentary. That's amazing. Um, One reason that this interview is really special to me personally is because Sophia is actually one of my first, if not the first ever mentor that I ever had. So thank you for being here. Thank you for everything that you've ever done for me personally. We have a relationship that started in 2011. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how oh. <laughs> this began? Well, I met you two days after I landed in LA after having done a PhD in Edinburgh, Scotland for four years. And it was my first contact back to my original context. Um, so I'm from San Fernando Valley, California. Uh, grew up in the Pacific, uh, at the time it was called the Pacific Latin American District for the Assemblies of God. Mm-hmm. Now it's SPD, I don't know what that acronym is. Southern Pacific District, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay, mm-hmm. but it's still Assemblies of God, Latino context. And um, I had been writing for the past two months, I had been in correspondence with Rudy Estrada, and um, I had asked if I could teach in exchange for room and board. And they cut me a deal. <laughs> so I taught two classes in exchange for a room, which in LA County is yeah, huge. Yeah, big deal. And so that was, I was adjuncting for Azusa Pacific University, um, but I knew I didn't want to return back to live with my parents after my PhD. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, I sought to teach at LABI or Latin American Bible Institute on purpose where I wanted to give back to my context and my community. Mm. I wanted to get reacquainted with the Latino community after having been in Scotland for four years. And, um, on top of it, I knew that, um, I felt a call to Pentecostalism to speak into 
how how the Bible was being used, namely the Old Testament within a Latino context. Hmm. That's a huge sector of Latino Pentecostalism. There's an affinity for the Old Testament. There's an affinity for uh, Judaism and Israel, as many of us know. So um, what's interesting is when you came into LABI, I was a student Mm -hmm. in 2011. I was 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And so many students like me, 60 of us are sitting in a class where you come in, you know, PhD. And I remember not even knowing what PhD meant. Uh, let alone never having seen a woman teach the Bible before. And for the first time ever, I saw myself, I saw what I could potentially become one day because I loved the Bible. And so to hear you speak on the Old Testament with such passion and with such intensity in ways that so many of us as students had never, ever asked questions of the text before. And if I can just share one thing that I remember you saying, uh, a class uh, or a section on Job, I remember you taught so many of us, and I remember there were students crying in that class because you taught us that it was okay to question God. And you said, look at Job, he did it all over this book. And so many of us, just our eyes were open in that moment as young Pentecostal, many of us raised in the church, coming to scripture with a certain lens and you just really busting open the scripture and you taught us, you know, the, the Bible is like a, like a deep well. You can either dip your toe in it or you can dive head on. So you really taught us that. And I think your, your mentorship of so many of us has played a pivotal role in, in our, a lot of our lives, especially mine. Can you talk about what mentorship has meant for you and how you even got to a PhD program yourself? Oh, thank you so much. You know, it's such an honor to hear you say that because... Many times, you know, I just put my head down and try to better teach whatever course I'm with that's in front of me. And I don't seek out people to mentor. I just feel that sometimes there are those divine appointments where I connect to students or they connect to me and for a time, I I feel that it's an honor to be entrusted with their education. Mm -hmm. There are those who don't care, and then there are those who stay close. And I'm really thankful that you were one of those students who stood close to me. When I was an undergrad, um, there were two mentors of mine. And I, at the time, didn't know that they were mentors. (laughs) They were just professors that I loved and I followed around. And one of them was my Bible teacher, who is a, he taught the Psalms. His name was Gerald H. Wilson. And I say H. Wilson because Gerald Wilson is a jazz player, oh. <laughs> but this guy is a Psalms expert, okay. or was a Psalms expert. Um, <clears throat> taught me Hebrew. I loved the Psalms. And then I took his class and I fell in love with Proverbs, hated the book of Job. I was his TA and I ended up helping him out um, with his commentary for the uh, New International Version Application Bible, Application Commentary. So NIV Application Commentary on the book of Job. And he, he cited my work as a master's student in that commentary and that really gave wow. me encouragement he he was in charge of a session for SBL regional meeting 
and he entered my master's thesis in a competition and I ended up winning the competition and that really encouraged me I didn't think of it as a career path for me I had always had a desire to do a PhD secretly um, just because there was someone I remember I went to my first um, youth convention when I was 12 years old and I had heard that you can get a PhD in theology because of the testimony of uh, Dr. Isaac Anales. So I knew that I wanted to get a PhD in theology, but I didn't know that I was going to do it in the Bible. I just knew that I felt a certain tug, like call to theological studies Mm -hmm. after having heard his testimony. Um, But I didn't have a model for a PhD in theology other than Isaac Anales. Um, And so I didn't say anything to anyone for years about it. So when I went into college, um, everybody was just like, why are you doing theology? Why are you going to a four-year university to study Bible and theology and Christian ministry? Mm-hmm. You know, why don't you go to Latin American Bible Institute, to LABI, uh, like your sisters did? And I just knew I wanted to further my education. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how. I didn't have the context for it. Neither did my parents, so I just went, and when I found Dr. Wilson, gravitated towards him, took every class that he offered, created classes with a cohort of mine to do directed studies in the Hebrew Bible, and then it led into my first master's. My second mentor was actually my acting teacher. Wow. First time I'd ever seen a woman as a professor Hmm. And I had to take an acting class every single semester because I was on scholarship for musical theater. Hmm. And so it ended up being another mentorship. Wow. Wow. So acting, musical theater, and the Bible, um, is there a way that you've seen kind of an overlap there? I mean, Job and, and the wisdom literature is so poetic. Like, yeah. what, what, ha- what kind of parallels have you seen between this passion of yours that you love along with with the wisdom literature? Well, I'm going to add a different nuance to this. Like there was also another thread. I was double major in Spanish literature. Hmm. So Latin American literature. And so then I, that was my double major was Bible and I was doing musical theater to keep the scholarship. Well, what I've seen was that when it came to grad programs, I applied to Fuller and I was actually a part of their theology and arts program, but I didn't like the way they were doing theology or the way that they were talking about art. I felt like they were trying to theologize art instead of looking at the theology that's embedded in people's art art, or like to look at the spirituality that's that artists have already you know yes and so I went to Fuller I took a class on Job and I hated the book still but I remember doing the paper on using Job as a model for holy theater wow and 
after that, I, after doing the research, I realized that Job 28 was problematic. And as a 21-year-old, I got stuck um, because I realized that I, I was passionate about the integrity of this piece of art. Hmm. I, I, I already loved biblical studies, but then looking at, finally giving myself the uh, permission to look at the Bible as art, hmm. that made me fall in love with the book of Job. Wow. And then I got stuck in there for a decade and a half now. Wow. That's, that's so beautiful. Um, even just the way that you express, you know, how biblical studies can take this, this turn of, of being an art form as well. I think yeah. um, kind of bringing it back to mentorship, like I said, a lot of Latinas in biblical studies specifically bring so many different lenses to the text. Yeah. And to see that as another lens that you bring. Yeah. I mean, just to see a woman professor, that's already such a powerful image for so many young women to see, mm -hmm. wow, a professor, be it of any field, right? Mm -hmm. Just to see a woman with authority, an expert on a certain subject, yeah. stand before a classroom and command the attention of both men and women is a very powerful image. So um, I know you've been involved in a lot of uh, work here at HTI and uh, in, in the Society of Biblical Literature and this new and upcoming group of Latinas in Biblical Studies. Uh, what Can you comment a little bit on the state of um, the next generation of biblical scholars or even theologians and just young women trying to come into these typically unaccessible spaces? It's been happening in academia, and I believe that God is behind that in all fields, in all disciplines, and it's a shame that it's just barely now happening in theology and in biblical studies. We're pretty much behind when it comes to a female voice and a Latina voice within our, our field and in our discipline. Hmm. Very unfortunate, but I really think that it's a spiritual act. Um, it's a part of the image of God, the dominion part of the Imago Dei, hmm. where God is claiming authority over all spheres of influence. And he does that not only through men, but also women. Hmm. Um, so I think it's, a very, it's very necessary hmm. for us to engage. Um, I feel very honored that I can be for other people what I didn't have. Hmm. So it's about maybe 12 years ago that I had started my PhD process and I was scared half to death. Even though I did have mentors like Mignon Jacobs who is a strong black woman and I did have some things modeled to me, I didn't really have a strong Latina mentorship. And so now that I'm embracing my Latinidad and exploring what that entails and mm -hmm. how it's influenced my perspective, I'm able to <clears throat> then in turn be intentional about my Latina students and my mm -hmm. Latino students. Wow. Um, I guess naturally for the past eight years, having taught outside of my PhD, uh, people, any, any person that feels othered at a Christian university, they kind of gravitate towards me anyway. 
whether they're Latino or not. That speaks very greatly about you, by the way. <laughs> no, I think it's just like, it's a part of like the makeup of never feeling like you fit in, so you kind of fit in everywhere. Hmm. That's kind of been my sense. And so to have queer students or to have um, African-American students or Asian students as well as Latinos, Latinas, Latinx people gravitate towards me. And I mean, it's given me an opportunity to speak into people's lives Mm. where I couldn't before. Like if I hadn't become a professor, I don't think I would be able to like connect to so many different people. Mm. Yeah. I think that's that's so important and like I said that that speaks a lot. I think Christian universities can be a very isolating space yeah, yeah. for for many people, especially minoritized students of whatever, mm-hmm. you know, whatever minority group yeah. you're part of. And I think uh, like I said just to have someone to connect to, whether that's an organic mentorship, which mm-hmm. I think I feel like ours was. Yeah. You know, I didn't consider you my mentor from day 1, yeah. but now I would say she was definitely my mentor. I think that's kind of what happens a lot in this field is you just gravitate towards someone. They're doing work that you want to do or mm-hmm. they embody something that you want to be. And so you stay close to them and you, yeah. I kind of feel like the Bible does that in general. You hear the stories of different people and it opens you up to the possibilities of, of what God can do in your life. Hmm. So to be Pentecostal about it, <laughs> it's kind of like a testimony meeting where you hear something that you could hear God's voice through his interaction with the person who's giving the testimony mm-hmm. and you're like why not me you know so even though you may not have sought me out as a mentor I think God used my story to open that possibility to you definitely definitely and and just paving the road I think is also just such a necessary work and a painful work Mm -hmm. I mean I was sharing with you earlier that there's I believe different mindsets that people take in in the academy and one is I went through really hard and horrible things so therefore you should too and the other mindset is I went through really hard and horrible things so here's the door Mm -hmm. and let me show you an easier way to Mm -hmm. to go about this and I think um, a lot of minoritized communities tend to take the latter mm-hmm. route and to say look I don't want you to have to go through yeah. what I went through and so let me show you a different way or or let me um, platform you in mm-hmm. certain ways and I think that's been a lot of the work that I feel so many not just yourself but many Latinas in theology and biblical studies in uh, sociology and whatever discipline have been that mm-hmm. organic way of younger generations coming into these uh, these spaces because of people like you and 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 connections you know networking and such an awkward thing sometimes but mm-hmm. uh, you know when it's just an organic friendship and you know like like you mentioned people gravitate toward you it's it just becomes a kind of a you know hey come along for the ride yeah. and, and let me show you what I'm doing and and you can do this too yeah. so I think that's very special because I mean you don't know like how wonderful it is to have people connect and gravitate towards you, especially in in this field, because usually people will overlook you. People will minimize what you bring. But I think, like, God will lead the right people to you. Hmm. And not every single person should be mentored by you. Hmm. So just... Be unapologetically yourself, and God will bring the right people to you. Definitely. I think 
in a lot of ways mentorship can take many different forms mm-hmm. right i think i think of people um who may have someone as a spiritual mentor, other people who have someone as an academic mentor mm-hmm. or as um, a peer-to-peer mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are different ways that mentorship can take form, and I think we need them all, yeah. right? You know, doing teología en conjunto, which is one of my favorite phrases because it's a way of essentially peer-to-peer mentoring yeah. where we're applauding each other's work, we're advancing the field, and then we're also, you know, looking looking down, uh, maybe that's the wrong way to say it, but looking to the next generation and mm-hmm. pulling them up as well. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. we're also marching alongside other women and other people of color who are doing great work and who sometimes just need that seat at the table. Yeah. There's a lot of talk about the table and if we even need the table and what that represents and, and not to get too much into that, but I think there's definitely something to be said for you know, the affirmation and, and the validation that we get from our community to say, this work matters, your work matters, and, you know, here's a platform for your voice. Yeah. So, so can you tell us a little bit more about what your PhD experience was like? I mean, being in Edinburgh, Scotland, I'm sure, was a long way from home. So what was that like for you? Well, the first, be- even before I got to Scotland, um, there was a lot of pushback from my family where I, by that time, I had gotten two masters and I remember one of my sisters relaying to me a conversation that she had with my mother, how she felt like she was a failure as a mother because her daughters were working moms. Mm -hmm. And then she mentioned, she said, and Sophia, I don't know if she's ever gonna get married. I don't know what she's doing with her life. And so my mom kind of felt like a failure as oh. a mom because by at by age 25, I had two masters, but I wasn't married and I didn't have children. Um, and then my father, he didn't even know that I had been reading the Hebrew text in Hebrews since I was 19 years old. Wow. And so when I had, I applied for Edinburgh um, for the PhD program, I had to break the news to my parents that I had gotten into this program. So again, 26 years old. My mom only went to sixth grade. My dad wow. went to secundaria. So it's like, I guess, high school-ish mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in Mexico. And my mom's mom never even went to school. She was illiterate. Um, with you know, Because she had to take care of her 17 brothers and wow. sisters. Um, very old school, <laughs> you know, anyway, but my, when I had to break the news to my dad, he got really angry and standoffish. He's like, you read Hebrew? Show me. He had me take out the Hebrew Bible and read for him. Mm. And, but when I read for him, he's like, I guess I'm going to have to save money up. Wow. And I said, dad, I got into the program I'll, I'll pray, I'll figure out, I'll apply for scholarships and I took a year off I, to defer and I worked in the library with like four or five different jobs around the seminary and I even worked for like the American Cancer Society wow. just applied for everything worked at a coffee shop <laughs> too and for a whole year just praying and asking God to 
give me confirmation that this was something that I needed to do or that I could do. Um, I ended up getting a studentship and it covered 70% of my tuition costs wow. and everything. Um, so for me, that was a confirmation for that, that I was headed in the right direction. Definitely. And so in 2007, I left for Edinburgh, Scotland, and I never had been to Europe ever in my life. And I remember being on that long plane trip, and I was just like, what am I doing? I, I just, I sold everything. Hmm. Sold my car, sold a lot of books because I was that desperate. I had to replenish my library when I graduated. <laughs> but, like, I just went and... Um, Every single day that I woke up in Scotland, I had to, it was a reminder that I had uprooted my whole life. Wow. And I better work really hard. And so I did. And every night I'd have stress dreams that my, <laughs> that I wasn't contributing with, to my family enough. Mm. I'd have dreams that my mom and dad were knocking on the door telling me that I needed to clean the house. Wow. Or that my whole family was going to move into my dorm room with me. Wow. You know, because there's this responsibility. Like, you have to contribute. You have to... You're a part of this family still kind of thing. And so being that far away, just a lot of guilt, a lot of just an awareness that I was just differentiating myself hmm. from my family and my context. Hmm. Wow. I think you just spoke to something that a lot of young women, not just Latinas, but just young women in general face is that the, the split responsibilities of I need to be this way, I need to do this. Yeah. Uh, but giving yourself the permission to be in a place like Scotland and to study and still having those dreams of, you know, family responsibility and obligation. I think your experience is, is very relatable in the sense that a lot of young women, especially in biblical studies, theology, who are battling with this as well, mm -hmm. right? You know, when am I going to get married? Will I, you know, have yeah. children? And, and what is my duty to my family? You know, the guilt of working motherhood, especially in Latina context, mm -hmm. it's kind of a taboo. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's very, very relatable in that you were in Scotland pursuing your dream while also having these dreams of fulfilling your duty at home. Yeah. So when you finished, were you anxious to stay in Europe? Did you want to come home or what was that like? I had originally planned to stay there for three years and then come back home. I was trying so hard to finish early, but I ended up being in a relationship and almost getting married to somebody from the UK, and that was very strange because there were no jobs there, and to become an expatriate American, but on top of that, like, well, who am I as a Latina in this new context? And so, like, I had to figure out where I wanted to live, who I wanted to be, and I chose to come back to L.A. to be with my family because I realized I wasn't ready to live a U.K. life. Hmm. I had just barely been gotten in touch with the fact that I am a Latina hmm. and I think differently I act differently it's not just something like let me choose to make Mexican food one day hmm. which it, a lot of my male colleagues and people in the UK they couldn't understand they, to, to them I was just a white American hmm. 
And it was like, whoa, this is the first time I've ever been called a white American. <laughs> yeah. You know, because I'm light-skinned, light-skinned, not skinned. And, um, you know, I have an American accent, so I could pass for anything. But internally, I had a lot of inferiority complex mm. that I had inherited from both my mom and my dad um, for not being white. And it was, it was surreal. And I kind of feel like me being in Scotland helped heal me from a lot of that inferiority complex. Wow. Who would have thought that being in a place like Scotland would be that <laughs> healing space for that? Well, yeah. You know, to hear the stories of when you go to Glencoe and when you go to the different places where there were massacres, you realize mm. that there are dominant cultures that first colonize their neighbors and then spread over to the other, you know, the Americas. And so for me, I had moments of solidarity with white people hmm. that I had never had before, like with Irish and Scottish and Welsh people. And I realized, you know, it's not about race, it's about colonialism. It's about the powers, you know, it's about, it's not, you know, as a Christian, it's ultimately sin, <laughs> you know, and, you know, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Well, Sophia, thank you so much for sharing that journey. And, and like I said, you know, ever since 2011, what I've seen in you, and sometimes we lost contact, but there, we never really lost contact. I think that's such a beautiful part of this network is it, you're always there and you're it, always present. It made me so proud when you went to Duke and you would still write to me. Sometimes you Well, would, because I needed help. You would send me <laughs> I was emails and I was, uh, sometimes I'd have a rough day. I was like, am I getting through these to these people? Am I getting through to anybody in my class? Like, am I even a good teacher or decent? And then I'd get an email from you or from other people and I'd be like, it's worth it. Mm. And then, you know. Well, again, you know, LABI, a small Pentecostal Bible college in La Puente, in nowhere land, basically, who knew that it would serve as a breeding ground for so many people who are interested now in, in you know, biblical studies, and especially me, you know, talking about uprooting your life. Mm -hmm. When I moved from Southern California to Duke, no family there, by myself, a young single woman, going to a place like Duke to further my education in biblical studies, the only models I had were you, and that was your exact story. And so I think what you said of being who you never had growing up, I think now that passion that you have had in doing that, in, in, in becoming who you did not have, I think has also been transmitted, again, not just to myself, but so many other people who now want to be that. Um, and, and I don't mean role model in the sense of putting you on a pedestal or no. saying you're infallible or whatever, yeah. but just to, to see that it can be done and to see yeah. women making it and taking places of, of faculty positions and places of authority and just making it into spaces that you know we, we're not normally in and so. for me mentorship is so easy because I get to just see people and call out what I see and from day one you know after having met you hearing the questions that you would raise in class or even seeing your work like one of the first things that I keep on telling you is that I just kept on looking at it and saying, why is she at a Bible institute? Why is she not in a four-year university? 
So like you going to Duke, you doing you pursuing your PhD in New Testament studies or in, in early Christianity, um, it's no it's no shock to me that you're pursuing this. And I'm like, yeah, you know, can't wait to read your books. I've been <laughs> waiting day. for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, none of this, you know, would have been possible without the exampleship of so many of 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 the people that come before us. So again you all have paved that road. You have done the hard work. You have, and a lot of us are inheriting still some of that hard work, but it's also made a little bit easier because of the trailblazing that has been done for us. So thank you again so much for sharing your journey. And I hope that, uh, you know, your life, your, your personal story can be of inspiration to others who are coming into fields that are very white dominated and I hope that um, you know this this topic of mentorship can continue to be fostered in uh, in HTI and uh, in the wider academy at large so that we can continue to get people um, seated at the table or at least having a voice and being able to share their own experiences mm -hmm. and really uh, just fighting against those statistics that um, you know more of us are getting PhDs, more of us are being represented at panels, more of us are writing books from Latina perspectives, and that is so important to contributing to diversity in this field. Mm -hmm. So thank you for your great work, and I personally love and appreciate you. Um, if I can just share this on the podcast, I'm five months pregnant, and my baby girl's actually going to be named Sophia um, because of, I love Greek, I'm a Hellenist, so the, the word <laughs> Sophia means wisdom, which I love that word. And the fact that you love the wisdom literature and you really imparted that love of the scripture to me. And I continue to take that forward and hopefully to my daughter as well. Uh, <laughs> she can do whatever she wants. But uh, I do hope that, you know, she follows this line because there's so much work to be done. So thank you again and look forward to keeping this conversation going. Thank you. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides these podcasts as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.